My name's Andy. I'm the Connections Pastor here at Connect Church. And uh, this morning, I'm going to continue the series that we've been going through for the past couple weeks, where we've been looking at the journey that different people took to get to the place where Jesus was born. And as I was preparing for this, it reminded me of perhaps the longest strangest journey that I've ever been a part of. When I was a college student in Minneapolis, I had an opportunity to go on some missions trips with, our, uh, with some different organizations. I went on a few. And one of the ones that I was supposed to go on was going to be organized by the school. And we were going to go to the nation of Turkey and walk in the footsteps of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, if any of you have studied his life, you know that he grew up in Tarsus, which is a city in modern-day Turkey, so we were going to get to see his hometown. We were going to go to Ephesus, which is one of the major key churches of the New Testament. We have a whole book in the Bible, a letter written from Paul to the Christians there, uh, that we were excited to see some of the facts and artifacts. We had an archaeologist going with us, and he was going to show us some cool things. This is really amazing opportunity. Like, I would never have in my life after that, and that's why I was taking advantage of it. So I raised all my money. I got excited. I was pumped to be able to go on this mission trip. And then a month, maybe six weeks before we left, something happened in Turkey where uh, the American embassy reached out and said, hey, listen, Western tourists should not come here right now. It's not safe. It wouldn't be wise. We can't guarantee your safety. So just stay away. And this was just a few weeks before we're supposed to go. And so, of course, our school administration, as you can imagine, they get together and they think, okay, we've got to cancel this trip. Well, these kids have already raised all this money. So, you know, they tell us the news and we're extremely disappointed in that. But then they tell us, we're going to try to find something else for you. And so within a couple weeks, they call us back and they say, listen, we've come up with another option for you. We hope you all take it up. Um, we're going to send you to, uh, to Bulgaria to work with the Roma there, which the Roma are a Turkish subgroup in Bulgaria, um, kind of a minority there. One of the uh, live in poverty and things. And, uh, and so we were going to get to go and work with these people. And it was kind of cool because we'd been studying Turkish a little bit. We knew a little bit of Turkish. I knew enough to say I am 21 years old. Yeremi Bir Yashinda. I still remember that 21 years later. Um, but that really did me no good because I could not ever remember how to say I have to find a bathroom when I was there. You know, it was one of those things. I, I'm 21. Uh, I got to go. <laughs> you know, I had no idea how to communicate that part. Um, but we were able to go, and, and, and they rescheduled the trip. We were really ex- getting excited about that. It wasn't what we signed up for, but we were going to make the most of it and have a good attitude. So on the day we were supposed to depart, we all gather at the airport in Minneapolis, and, and uh, it must have been 6 a.m. It was really early. We get on the plane, fly a few hours to New York City, um, have a little bit of a layover in New York City, fly from New York City to Amsterdam, have a few hours for a layover there, fly from there to Bucharest, Romania, and have another layover there. And if, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know what jet lag feels like, and you know that the key rule is, uh, even though you want to go to sleep during the daytime, you cannot go to sleep during, during the daytime. And none of us had been able to really sleep on the airplane, and so we were all exhausted. We'd been flying for something like 28, 30 hours and no sleep and very little food and some of us were nauseous and uncomfortable from the tight quarters on the flight. And here we are in Bucharest and we came to find out that that was the closest that they were going to be able to get us before going into Sofia, Bulgaria. And so what we were supposed to do was we were going to take a train from Bucharest into Sofia through the mountains 
and we were going to get there that way. It was a 10-hour train ride, but it didn't depart for eight or nine hours from the time we arrived. And so now we have eight or nine hours of daylight to spend sightseeing. Now, I like sightseeing generally. I, I'm, I'm a guy, I'm like, hey, I've never been to Romania before. Let's go see the sights. Tell me what's cool about this place. I love that kind of history and that kind of, you know, see, taking that stuff in. But I was not in the mood at that time, as you can imagine. I was exhausted. I was uncomfortable. It's kind of frustrated that the trip wasn't the trip I signed up for. But it was okay. We were going to make the most of it. So we went, we did the sightseeing thing, and it required a lot of walking, which was also uncomfortable. And keep in mind, none of us really knew each other before this trip. We were all strangers, like 10 or 12 strangers from different groups in this, this college that had been thrown together for a 28-day missions trip. And so... <clears throat> And so we, uh, we, we do the sites and all of that in Bucharest, and <clears throat> it's pretty cool. But when we finally are, it's time for us to head to the train station, we get in this like van that we rented, a, like a shuttle, people mover kind of thing. And we're driving along, and all of a sudden we start slowing down. We're like on a highway kind of thing. We're like, what in the world's going on? We look over our shoulders, and sure enough, we're being pulled over by the cops. Now, we didn't know what was going on. We were like, mm, it felt like everything was going okay. Um, but through our translator, we came to find out that the cops were pulling us over because they were dirty cops and they were looking for a, a bribe or we go to jail. One of those situations, okay? They saw an, a, a tourist bus with a bunch of Americans, presumably wealthy in their minds, um, and they were going to demand our money. Or And these are police officers, peacekeepers there. And so we're thinking, this is weird. <laughs> this place is odd. Um, and, and so, and so we, we paid them off and we're on our way and we're like, oh, this is annoying. Let's just get to the train station because we knew that we were renting those train cars that have like the three bunk beds where you can sleep and we were just ready to sleep for the next 10 hours straight. You know what I mean? Um, we were just exhausted at this point. And so we uh, get to the train station and we're all just kind of like, oh. I can't wait to get into to my room. I can't wait to go to bed. I can't wait to go to sleep. And some American English-speaking tourist who was near us said, are you guys getting on this train to Sofia? Yeah. Uh, listen, just a word of warning. The workers on these trains are notoriously corrupt, okay? Here's what they do. You may go into your room and lock the door and go to sleep and think you're all secure and you're safe, but here's what they do. They pop the doors open. I don't mean to freak anyone out. This was the reality in 1998. This was a long time ago. Uh, they pry the, 99, something like that. They pry the doors open and, um, and they come in and they steal your stuff, like your money, your, your, you know, your stuff. And so you're like up a creek at that point. So don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. <laughs> and so we're thinking, this is the worst trip ever. You know, we're like, what in the world did we sign up for? So we, we uh, get into our, room, our dorm things and, and one person has to stay up. It's three hour shifts. We've got to stay up. We've got to keep a watch. And I know this was a long time ago, but I know I was responsible for a three hour shift, but I don't remember doing a three hour shift. I'm I'm pretty sure I slept through my shift, but at one point during, the, uh, during my snooze time, I was asleep, and I'm awakened to one of my roommates saying, guys, 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 and sure enough, I wake up, and I see the door just shaking just a little bit, being messed with, and pretty soon, the door pops open, and I see the silhouette of one of these train workers standing there, looking in at us, and you can imagine, he's probably trying to figure out, are they awake, are they asleep, it's really dark in our, our room, and so we, somebody goes, get away, and so he just quickly shuts the door and scampers off, and that was kind of the end of that. We're thinking, oh my gosh, this is how this trip is starting. This is ridiculous. 
And then when we finally get to Sophia after this long, exhausting train ride, we get there and um, we get off the train and we're carrying our bags behind us like this. And these men very aggressively come up and they grab our bags from behind us. They say, no, 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 I help, I help. Well, first we thought they were stealing them, but they, then they say, I help you, I help you. So they, they grab our bags and they walk along with us. We're like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, they're treating us like, you know, we're a big deal or something. So we get to the, the, the shuttle or the van that we were supposed to ride in. And then they won't give us our bags back until we tip them. You know, it's just this weird, weird, weird thing that we've got. And, and this is the beginning of a trip where we're spending 28 days living in one or two room homes in the rough part of Sofia, or Plovdiv is the town we ended up in, um, it, it, with Turkish families. We don't speak anything except I am 21 years old. You know, that's all we speak. And... Um, and so it was just this odd beginning. It did turn out well. I think I have a picture of the, uh, the trip that I want to show you here. This is me giving my testimony. Yes, that is me in the yellow, uh, young, 21-year-old, Yernami Bashinda. I think that's how you say it. Uh, uh, that's me at 21 years of age. So we were able to get there and share our testimony. It ended up being a good time, but it was this strange trip. And what happens to me is maybe what happens to you. When I face adversity like that, Sometimes I think, boy, did I miss something? Was I not supposed to come here? This was weird. This is odd. This is off. And it, it was the kind of stuff that made me think, why did I come? Why am I here? Can I quit? Can I go home? The past few weeks, we've been looking at these journeys that different people took to get to the place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And in recent weeks, we've looked at the journey of Mary. Mary was a young woman who was engaged to Joseph, and she was told she was going to give birth to this, this, this boy supernaturally, and he would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And, but, but the law stated that she had to go to Bethlehem. She lived in Nazareth. It was like a 100-mile journey. This would have been 8 to 10 days. And so she's got this pretty long journey to get to this place where her child would end up being born. There was another journey that we looked at in recent weeks, the, the journey of the shepherds. These men were just outside of Bethlehem in the fields outside of town. So their journey wasn't near as long. But when the angels came to them and said, hey, guys, there's a Savior who's being born and you guys are invited to the party. These men were very, you know, just thrilled that they got to go. And so they ran and they were excited to see the Christ child. And they were so excited that they went from there and they told everyone. And so we've been talking about these different journeys. Today I want to look at the journey of the third member, if you will, of the nativity, um, in addition to, to uh, Mary and Joseph, and then the shepherds, and then the third group that w was there in our traditional pictures, of course, the, the wise men, right? Today, I want to look at the journey of the wise men. And in the, the nativity picture, the traditional picture that we get, we see this. We see a group of people huddled around a baby in a barn, and we see Men who were there wearing crowns, these are presumably the wise men, and they're holding golden gifts, valuable gifts, and there are camels nearby, and they are there with the shepherds, and they are there with Jesus on the night of his birth. But a lot of this picture that we have is shaped by our, our Christmas tradition rather than the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative actually describes something a little bit different from this. And I, want, I just want to say, this is okay. If this is, your, you know, if this is your picture of the nativity, don't... I heard a story recently of a, a kid who heard the story of what I'm about to tell you. And it, because the, it's very likely that the, 
the, the wise men weren't actually there on the same night as the shepherds. He took the wise men, this little child, and put them in his nativity set way on the other side of the room. Now, I don't think you need to go that far. I don't think you need to have your, uh, your whole picture of Christmas rocked by what I'm about to say. Because the point is, all of these groups of people were invited to the party at the same time. Some of them just got there a little later than others. So, we sing a song this time of year called, We Three Kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar. And, and this, this, this song teaches us, number one, that there were three of them. The reality is we don't know how many there were. We only know that there were three gifts that were given. And so we, tradition has said there were three of them. We also call them kings in the song. That's not completely accurate as well. The, the word that is used for them in the one biblical narrative of their existence and of their journey to Jesus is the word magi. It's the Greek word from which we get the American or the English word, magic. It's, it's a word that indicates that they were not royalty, but they were connected to royalty. They were astrologers. They were people who were watching the stars for signs. And they were sophisticated. They were connected. They were important. But they were not necessarily kings. We also see them... Um, as that picture showed, with the shepherds there at the night of the nativity. But as we're going to see here in a moment, that may not have been totally true as well. So let's take a look at the biblical narrative of the, the journey of the wise men, the magi. And the magi, their story is told in one of the four gospels. There are four gospels that tell the life of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew is the one of the four that talks about the journey of the wise men. And so in Matthew chapter 2, this is where the story picks up. And so that's where we're going to begin today. Matthew writes this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So this is an interesting sort of blending of personalities and, and types. And you're going to see what I'm talking about here. Because So these, these three or, or four or five or whatever it was, whatever that number of magi were, they come into Jerusalem because a star has risen that they saw from way far away in their homeland, which is to the east is all we know. We don't know where they were from exactly, but somewhere to the east. And they see this star that rises in the sky, and this, this star speaks to them somehow that a Jewish king has been born. A Jewish king has been born. Now, you, if you're like me and if you're like them, you have to think that if a star is announcing the coming of a king, then this king is different. Because stars don't announce the coming of every king. In fact, there are many, many kings who have come and gone and nobody in lands to the east really cared. You know what I mean? But something about this child has, uh, is different because there is a star that is speaking to them in whatever their understanding was. And I'm not here to teach you on that because I have no idea what it was. But all we know is that there was a star that announced to them and declared to them that a, a king of the Jews had been born. Then they go to, to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, you, know, you and I know that Jesus was actually born where? In Bethlehem, right? He was born in Bethlehem. And so they are going to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the palace is. That's where kings are born. Kings 
are born in palaces to royal families. And these men know this. And so as they see this sign of a Jewish king that has been born, they realize, they, they think in their minds, okay, if, if a Jewish king has been born, it makes sense for us to go to Jerusalem. That's probably where this happened. And so they travel to Jerusalem because this star has told them that this child has been born. And then in verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed by this new, as he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now you have to understand this about King Herod. It does make sense that he would feel threatened by this. He is being completely threatened by the announcement of a, a child who has been proclaimed by the heavens to be a king of the people that he is currently the king over. And if you want to get real technical, Herod was not officially a king. Okay, keep in mind at this time in history, the, the Romans were the governing body. You know, they, they, they had overcome the entire like Middle East and Europe and, and much of um, Africa and different parts of the world. The Romans were a very powerful empire. And, they, and so the only true king at this time in any of these countries was Caesar Augustus. But Caesar Augustus would go and he would uh, raise up local people to whom the people would answer, but then that person, King Herod in this case, would be loyal to Caesar and not necessarily to the people, okay? So Caesar, so excuse me, King Herod was more of a governing authority. And so Herod realizes that his, his throne is at, at risk. He's, uh, his authority is at, in jeopardy. And this child is the one who is the threat. And so the, the narrative here in Matthew says that not only was Herod disturbed, but the entire people of Jerusalem were disturbed as well. Why? Why would they be disturbed? Because they know what this man is capable of. They know what a psychopath he is. They know that he is a, a megalomaniac and he's, he's just power hungry and he's insecure and they can foresee what is about to happen. So Herod goes on in verse four and he calls a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and he asks, this is a very interesting question. He says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Now, why is he asking about the Messiah at this point? Because he knows that no king has been born in his household. So he's eliminated that possibility. Now he starts thinking, okay, what other king could this be talking about? And why would the heavens be declaring to these men from the east that this king has been born? This must be kind of a big deal. And so he remembers what every Jewish boy and girl had been taught their entire lives. That there, one day there would be a, a king who would come and he would be the Messiah. And the Messiah, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word, which means the anointed one of God. And the understanding of this Messiah was that he would be a deliverer of the people. He would be a special messenger. He would be a savior. And he was going to be the son of God in flesh. And he was going to come and he was going to restore the people back to their place of prominence out from under the rule of the Romans and all of these people. And they were going to be powerful people in the world. That was what a lot of them believed to be true. But the Messiah was going to come at some point in the future. And this had been spoken of for generation after generation. And so Herod knew about the Messiah, but apparently he didn't know a ton. Um, and so he calls these religious leaders together and he says, guys, the Messiah, where is he supposed to be born? And they say in verse 5, they say in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote. And then they go on and they quote the prophet Micah from the Old Testament. And he wrote this, O Bethlehem, 
and you, will, uh, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with these wise men. And, and, and in this meeting, he learned from them the precise time when the star first appeared and when they first saw it. Now keep that in mind. That, that becomes pretty important later on. He, he figures out exactly when the star rose. In verse 8, And then he told them, Go into Bethlehem and search carefully for this child. And when you find him, come back to me so that I can go and worship him too. After the interview with the wise men, they, they went on their way, and the star they had seen uh, in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now I want to take a quick little pause right there. And I just, I, I love this part of this, this story it, when they give the gifts. I don't believe that the wise men fully understood what they were doing and what they were saying when they gave these three particular gifts. But you know how when you read through uh, the, the, you know, accounts like this of Jesus's life, there's also, there's often meaning that is underneath the meaning sort of thing. I think this is one of those instances. I don't think it was just, it, it just happenstance that these three gifts were the ones that were given. I think there was a prophetic thing that was happening here, but I don't think these men knew what they were necessarily saying in this moment. The three gifts that they gave, again, were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a, a symbol of royalty. It's an early indicator of this child's identity as a king from the very beginning of his life. Secondly, they give the gift of frankincense. What is frankincense? It's a symbol of holiness. It was, a, it was a particular kind of incense that was used in the Jewish temple that would be offered up from this altar as a constant, never-ceasing prayer to God that was pleasing to God. So it's a symbol of holiness. And then thirdly, they give the gift of myrrh. What is myrrh? It's a symbol of sacrifice. Myrrh was an extremely valuable um, oil or uh, like an embalming oil that would be used to embalm the dead and prepare them for burial. So here at the very beginning of Jesus's life, we have this prophetic moment where these three men give these three gifts and all three of the gifts point to a different part of who Jesus is and who he would be that they couldn't have possibly known at this point. A, a king who is holy and set apart for God's work who would, whose life would be a sacrifice for the, for the entire world. And so, shortly after this happens, as they go into the home and they give their gifts and they worship this child for who they believe him to be, God comes to these wise men and tells them, listen, like in a dream, like don't go back to Herod. Herod has ill intentions. Do not trust him. I want you to go back home a different way, which is what they do. And so they're out of the picture now. They escape. And then God also warns Joseph, the father of Jesus. And he says to, to him in a dream, listen, Herod is about ready to do something terrible. Get this child out of here. Protect him. And so uh, Joseph takes Mary and his son Jesus into Egypt instead of back to their hometown of Nazareth. Uh, for a season um, because of what is about to happen. And then 
Herod goes on and he commits this terrible, terrible act in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So what does this tell us? First of all, it tells us very obviously that Herod was a sick, sick individual. To commit such a terrible act where he would, uh, you know, put the, the safety of children at risk to protect his own throne is, is just absolutely horrible. The fact that he would do that. The second thing that it tells us is that this entire interaction with Jesus and the wise men could have happened as many as two years after the day he was born. Why? Because remember, Herod found out exactly when the star first appeared to them and when their journey probably began. And then Herod's instructions are, any child two years and under, any male child, just get rid of him because I don't want this threat to my throne. And so... The picture of Jesus in the manger with the shepherds on one side and Mary and Joseph in the middle and the wise men on the other side is probably not factual. In fact, the the reality is it was probably at least 40 days, if not up to two years later, that the wise men showed up. They came to a house. Matthew calls him a child rather than a baby at this point. And then the whole account of the... um, Herod um, worrying about children two years of age and under. So again, I hope this doesn't burst any like Christmas bubble for you or anything. I hope it doesn't rock your picture of, uh, of what Christmas is all about. Because the whole point is that all of these parties were invited to the party. They just got there at different times because of the length of their journeys. Some historians believe that these, these wise men could have traveled anywhere from like up to eight or 900 miles to get there on the night that they arrived at Jesus's home when he was a child. So if you know us here at Connect, you know that we're not just uh, all about, hey, here's a bunch of facts about Christmas, now go and have a great week, you know? <laughs> we like to try to find a way that this means something to us. Like, where, how can we grow from this? How, what can we understand about our own spiritual journey based on what we read in the story of the wise men? Well, this is what I think. The first point that you need to understand about these wise men and, and what this narrative tells us is that everyone is invited to the party. Everyone is invited to the party. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Before Jesus came to earth, having a relationship with God was not entirely but almost exclusive to Jewish people only, okay? You had to either be born into a Jewish family or adhere to and convert to Jewish standards in order to have a relationship with God before Jesus came. And in the story of Jesus, what we see is, yes, Jews were invited. Of course, Mary and Joseph were Jewish. The, uh, the shepherds would have been Jewish. But these men who came from the east were almost certainly not Jewish. They were Gentiles. And before this moment, it was very rare for anyone outside of the Jewish covenant, the Jewish faith, to be brought in to the, the party. And here at the beginning of Jesus' life, we see a standard being changed that his life would later like completely confirm uh, in that you don't have to be Jewish. The whole point is God sent his son so that everyone who would believe in him could have relationship with him and therefore have eternal life. 
So we see that this was the plan from the beginning. And Jesus' birth is the beginning of us seeing this working itself out. The second thing we can learn from the journey of the wise men is that everyone's journey looks a little different. Everyone's journey looks a little different from other people's. See, at the beginning of, li- of Jesus' life, we see this, this is like a small sample size of what we would see later on. Mary and Joseph travel perhaps 80 to 100 miles, somewhere in that range, to be, with, uh, to be in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. The shepherds come from right outside of town, and they've got a sort of a different journey. And then these wise men travel from eight to 900 miles to get to this place. And they arrive at different times, and they have different bumps in the road and different adverse circumstances and, and different experiences along the way. And, and I think about that in terms of those of us in this room, and I look around, and I know some of your stories, and I know my story, and I think that there are some people who would say, my journey to Jesus was, you know, I, I was raised in a Christian home, and I had loving, godly Christian parents, and my experience has been, you know, not that it was easy, and there weren't bumps in the road. We all have bumps in the road. We all have adversity. We all, but, but for some people, you know, it was like, it just didn't take me very long to get to a place of, of finding my own faith. And then other people had to work through different things. Maybe you were raised in a, a Christian home, but your parents were hypocrites, and they used the Bible to thump you over the head when you were wrong. And so your whole experience has been more about relearning who God is and, and letting go of the, the misrepresentations that you were exposed to as a child and your journey looks different than that other person and others of you grew up in a completely irreligious home no religious experience or maybe a different religion altogether but the whole point is everyone is invited to the party everyone is invited to a relationship with God and our journeys look differently uh, they, your journey looks different from mine, and my, I, I have no judgment <laughs> about you based on what your journey was because I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't know what experiences you've had to overcome in order to get to the point where you are today. And here's what I want to say to you today. Some of you in this room have uh, taken that journey, and you've, you've crossed a line of faith, and you've gotten to a point where you have put Jesus at the center of your life and you have entered into relationship with him and he has become first and foremost in everything you do. Others of us in this room, maybe you're here today and, and you're, you're on a journey, but you're not even sure where that journey's going. You wouldn't call yourself a believer. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I just want to let you know that today um, you need to hear this. You've been invited to the party. You've been invited to have a relationship with the creator of the universe because maybe to this point, your knowledge of what Christmas has been about has been from the traditional picture. And, and, and you need to know this though today, that Jesus coming to earth wasn't the beginning of a new holiday. Jesus coming to earth wasn't the beginning of a new religion. Jesus coming to earth was the beginning of an invitation to relationship with the the God who made each and every one of us. God loves you, and he has invited every one of us into relationship. No matter what your journey looks like, he longs for you to accept the invitation. So I ask you today, what are you going to do with that invitation if you haven't responded to it already? Let me pray for you this morning and just ask that God would 
seal this in your heart. Father, thank you so much for uh, uh, seeing the picture of these men who journeyed so far and overcame so much and dealt with this, this huge obstacle in the way that was King Herod. And Lord, they didn't let it derail them from coming to a place where they would worship the Savior of this world. And God, I see myself in that, Lord. I've had bumps along the way. I've had distractions. I've had things that would have caused me to want to quit the journey. But Lord, I just, I'm so thankful that I, I got to a point where I got to see Jesus for myself. And I got to understand he really was worth the bumps along the way. He really was worth the journey and the difficulties that I faced. And so, Lord, I just pray for every individual here that we would... Um, see you in this moment, that we would understand that we have been invited to the party. For those who have accepted the invitation, Lord, let us be people like the shepherds who go and and just lovingly tell others about the invitation as well. And Lord, for those of us who are on the journey, Lord, just give us the opportunity to at some point see Jesus and for who he really is and, and accept him as Savior in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.